you turn in your uh, Bibles or you can look on the screen to um, Psalm chapter 2, we're going to be reading the whole psalm together. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their, their, their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please be seated. You know, as you're reading this, it's not the kind of thing that you're going to see knit probably into some sort of like, um, you know, pillow that somebody writes for you. I think we tend to, uh, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have a very sentimental view of God. And, and I was thinking about that today, that you really have to have an abridged sense of what the Word of God is, or so chopped up the, the, the Bible to think that there's no kind of pattern, that you're just kind of picking the verses you like to miss these, to miss these clear evidences of the fact that God is not somebody be, to be trifled with, that the fact that we have, that he's a, a God of grace and compassion is set against the fact that he's a holy God and that all creation owes him worship. But the other thing that's interesting about this is that, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the term uh, one-string banjo. It's kind of an expression to refer to somebody who, it seems like that's, they, they only have one tune. They can never kind of like, if you're talking to them about, about something, it's always the same thing all the time. They don't have any depth. It's always going to come back to, to one aspect. And so, so you know, if, if some people have kind of one-string banjo when it comes to the Word of God, where everything is always just kind of like, you know, like there's almost a sense in which you're just going to be blessed all the time, like that the Scriptures somehow say everything's going to work out. And if you think about what uh, Psalm 1 says, it says, "'Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers.'" For his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on, on, on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Okay, so now... Isn't that an interesting contrast? So everything that the man of God in Psalm 1 says will prosper and the wicked won't, right? 
And then we get to Psalm 2, and it's like, wait, is that what we just heard? That doesn't seem like what the psalmist is saying. In fact, if you, if you, if you, um, some, some early manuscripts or collections actually have Psalm 1 and 2 in one collection, like they're not two different psalms, it's not important but to note that they're all written by one author in terms of, you know, the Holy Spirit inspired, and the, the human author was probably the same for both. But the point is, is that if all you have is like the ding, 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 you're playing the same tune all the time, you're saying, hey, Psalm 1, Psalm 1, everything I'm going to do, if I obey the Lord, everything that I'm going to do is prosper, and everything in this life, the wicked are never going to get their way. But see, and the, the reality is, is that if you, read, um, if you read Ecclesiastes and other parts, do we see the wicked prospering? You can say yes. You can respond. Do we see people who are righteous not? Things aren't working out for them very well? Yeah, so it's like, well, what, which is it, God? Which, in the reality, it's both. And it's a matter of the perspective that we have in terms of how we see things that are happening. There is a uh, story of um, this uh, in, in Germany. It was during World War II. It was illegal for the um, Germans to listen to the BBC. You could get in a lot of trouble if you were listening to the BBC because, you know, that the England is not that far, and so you could tune in and listen to BBC reports. Well, the, this, this elderly couple had received a report from uh, the military that their son, who was a U-boat officer, had perished. And uh, because it had been way too long since it had come back. And so they were planning the funeral and there was kind of a knock on the door and it was, it was the local tailor visiting them. And he said, hey, um, I just want to let you know that I heard on the BBC like your son was, was captured by, you know, because the, the British would announce the names of the people they had captured. And so they went and told them that. And so... Uh, they received that report from a few other people, but what are you going to do? Because, you know, you're, the, the, the government said, hey, your son's dead, and so uh, what are you going to say? Like, well, we know he's alive, and they're going to be like, well, how do you know he's alive? And so they decided to hold the funeral anyway. And so they had this funeral, and then afterwards they broke out the champagne, and so there's, there's this, it's, it's actually an interesting thing because to, to, in one sense, everybody kind of sees what Christians are doing and say, this, what, why, this is reality. And then Christians are saying, no, the reality is much different because we have information that you don't. And that's what Psalm 2 is telling us repeatedly is that we have information that others don't. And this information that we have is not information that we just receive sort of like here, let me give you a data point here. And I'm going to say, uh, newsflash, the Son of God rose from the dead. And you could tell that to somebody who is dead in their sins and trespasses, and the Spirit of God can act on them to change them. But if their heart remains hard to that, it doesn't change anything about their perspective. But when that reality sinks in and you understand that God is behind all the things that are happening and that everything is in the hand, hands of God, then it changes everything. And as somebody said uh, to, to one pastor once, that if Psalm 2 wasn't true, I think I'd lose it, is what they said. If Psalm 2, 2 was not true, I think I would lose it. Because the psalmist starts a out with a question. He says, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So he's like, what is going on? This is crazy. Why do the nations rage against God? Isn't that kind of like the, co- the, the, most, the, the, the cosmic craziness of it all? Why do the nations rage against God? And it's, it's every kind of ruler, every kind of uh, leading thing imaginable, any kind of, uh, of point of authority. And, and we see it. We see it around us, and we kind of like, because we're in this society, we're in this culture, we understand, in fact, we're, we're kind of shaped more by it than we often realize in terms of the things that we might rage against that the Lord has set up, in terms of, you know, the way that society has tuned us to think in certain ways, and part of the Scripture's job is to kind of get us to think in ways so that when, when we see the world doing things, we understand why they're doing them because we know that they're, that they're, still, um, they're still under the thrall of the kingdom of darkness. But there is a certain sense in which since we know that God is on his throne, there's a certain frustration and craziness is like, why is this happening and how long is this going to happen? Why is God letting this happen and why are the nations plotting against him? And the reality is, is that if we only think about this plane, this worldly plane, then it can really seem bleak at times. We can often think about like how many things are being lost in terms of personal liberties, all sorts of things. I don't even, I, I'm, I bet you I, it would take me like uh, two minutes to get one of each one of you started about something that you don't like about what somebody, some leader somewhere is doing about something. It would not be that hard for you to kind of relate and say, why are they raging against God? Is it no, don't they understand that God doesn't like these things? And in fact, the, the worst kind of blindness are the ones that are doing it for, out of a sense of righteousness. It's not like people plot and go, hey, I think I'm going to destroy the world. Yes. You know, like the villains that I grew up with, you're like, yeah, that, that villain totally needs to die because all they want to do is evil things. They're just so evil. But the reality is, is most people are really good-natured and they're trying to help. They're actually destroying people in the, in the, the process of trying to help. And you're thinking, this is crazy. The, the celebrations that go on for things where, you know, now you're, you're, you're expected to celebrate because you're celebrating love, you're celebrating freedom, celebrating all sorts of other things. And you're thinking, oh, this is crazy. And, I'm, and, and why is this happening? And you're trying to, trying to deal with that in, in what leaders are doing, including religious leaders, for good. Think about what Acts chapter 4 says, verses 23 to 30, and see if you recognize the text here. So just to set this up, um, Paul, I'm sorry, um, this is after the resurrection because it's the Acts of the Apostles, or some people sometimes call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's the one doing these things in the Apostles. But um, the, the, uh, Peter and John are in the temple, and they see a man who's uh, a cripple from his youth, and they cause him to stand. And he's walking, and he's like praising God. And then they gather around everybody, and it's like the third time they say they 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 preach this preach the word and they say, "Hey, by the way, I just want to let you know that the person whom you crucified, Jesus, he's the name by which I have raised this person from the dead." And so the Sanhedrin 
collect them and say, hey, you're not allowed to do this. I'm letting you know right now, you got to stop. You have no authority to do this, and you're not allowed to preach in God's name. And Peter and John says, hey, whether, whether it's right for us to, to obey you or to obey the Lord, you be the judge, but we're going to preach Christ. Now, the interesting thing is, like, how many times this whole thing, it's like, you heard what we said. Like, this guy was crippled. This is like the third major thing that's happened where this person is walking right now, and it's by the power of Jesus, whom you crucified. And they're like saying, you keep saying that. Please stop saying that. That is really irritating us. But it doesn't change them. It's like, it's like, it's just like water on, in, on packed ground that just keeps getting harder and harder and harder. And so they, 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 they say, hey, you better stop or we're going to get really, really mad and you better stop. But pa- Peter and John um, go on and then they say, when they were, they, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were, again, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had, had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So you see the perspective? But it'd help if I could read better and I could see better. But the point is, is that they, they're, they're released and then they say, hey, this is exactly what Psalm 2 predicted. That there's rulers, including the, the people who were supposed to be the people of the book, those who were teaching the word, were an, arrayed against Christ and his anointed. And it's, it's sort of like we, we, we just got through uh, Luke together, and um, Jesus is, the, the, the apostles and, and other disciples are just walking away. A couple of them are going down to Emmaus, and, and I was even just reflecting upon what a gracious thing it was that Christ pursued these disciples who were leaving Jerusalem. And he meets them on the way, and he's just hanging out, and he's like, they're like, oh man, he's like, they're just talking. He goes, hey, what's going on? Um, wh- where are you guys coming from? Oh, Jerusalem. Yeah, I was there too. Um, He's like, oh, I can't believe these things that were happening. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, what things? What things happened in Jerusalem? And they're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened? Have you thought about the cosmic irony of that question? <laughs> Jesus was the only one who knew the things that had happened. 
Because as far as the disciples were having, as far as Herod, Pontius Pilate, the chief priests and the scribes, they all knew what had happened. They all knew that a, that, that, that they, the disciples knew that they had lost their, they, they had thought that he was the hope of Israel, but he was not. And Herod, and, Herod who, was, who, who just wanted to get rid of somebody, and Pontius Pilate, who just wanted political expediency, and the chief priests and scribes who considered him a false prophet, all put him to death by their hand, but according to the predestined will of God himself. And the very act that they're, they're, they're plotting and they're, they're doing all these things, they're, they're saying, we're going to make this happen. And God is predestined so that his son, by the hands of wicked men, would be put to death, not unwillingly, but the son willingly, going to his death for the redemption of all of us. And it's all perspective. It's all having this eternal perspective about what's happening. Because the Lord kind of has his response to these, uh, these rulers in verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, for those of you who doubt whether or not God laughs, it's right here, but the laugh here is not one of like, ha ha ha, that's funny. It's more like a scornful laugh because here's the nations with all their power, with all their cultural power, all their economic power, everything coming together and saying, we're going to array ourselves and we're going to do everything we can to thwart these things. And God is just like, are you kidding me? You, get, you understand, see, this is where we sometimes need to have this perspective to think, well, this seems really bad, and then we need to kind of zoom out and say, oh, yeah, God's like laughing at this right now. This is like, he's, he's got scorn for this. This, is, this isn't even phasing him at all. The very act which they thought they were going to destroy the Son of God is the very act that God used to save us from our sins. Think about that. That's pretty funny. I mean, think about Satan and all his devices saying, I've got it finally. I'm going to crush the sun. I'm going to do everything I can. In fact, you can kind of almost look at all of this as the power of darkness trying to crush and destroy the seed of the woman. And so God just says, you know what? I'm going to use this incredibly like elaborate multi-thousand year judo move and at the end, it's not only going to, it'd be, it'd be one thing to crush somebody, but it's like, you know, you ever watch those shows where like at the end, everything's revealed, kind of like Ocean's Eleven. You're like, no way, that is amazing. And you're like, at the end, that's really cool how, of course, that's probably not a good idea because they're criminals, but God's not a criminal. He's got this amazing plan. And then, and at the end, Satan's like, no, everything's revealed at the end. He's just going to be so upset because everything that he did was like everything that God had ordained to turn about around on him. And when we have that perspective, this, this long, multi-thousand year, like God's in control and predestining all, not in the sense that he's controlling them to do that, but that he's allowing them to do the very thing that they want to do in their heart to destroy God. And God is using those very things to work everything together for the good of those who are called, for those who are called and loved by him. 
That's an amazing thing to think about, that God is not at all phased by this and that his, his wrath will one day be meted out against that. And so he continues in a decree, and this is, it's almost like the voice changes here to one of the person who is being spoken of. He says, I will tell of the decree in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this is, this is a messianic psalm, okay, meaning that it's prophesying of something greater than what David could have said of himself. The point is here is that God has decreed. And this is one of the things that if you miss this, you really need to start thinking about, like, looking at Christ in, 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 this, in this sense of like this very firm understanding and commitment to, to pursuing Jerusalem from the time of his ministry, that everything that he's doing is gathering his sheep together and then being able to go in to provide for the means of their release and redemption that he's got his mind set upon the cross. And the disciples don't understand this because they think that the means of release will be to break the chains of iron, to break with a rod of iron. They expect this, this prophecy to be fulfilled by Jesus to kind of start training people. You know, it's like you do this long training sequence and everybody's getting stronger and stronger. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're, you're learning. You're really learning how to fight Peter. And like, you know, you can come, kind of imagine one of these, these scenes in a movie and then Jesus comes in and it's like, yeah. And every, and the Romans are like, no. And then he just, he just shatters the, the Romans and the, the Jews are like, yes, this the, the Zion's retaken and everything. And then what does Jesus do? Everything that nobody expects. But it's the very thing that he came to do because the real power behind the power was not the, the weapons and those sorts of things that were just basically instruments, but the principalities and power that held each of us captive, enslaved to sin and death. You see, if you don't recognize that our biggest problem is not necessarily the, the outward things that happen in terms of uh, the poverty, the other kinds of things, those are, all, those are all symptoms of the fact that we're all slaves to sin apart from Christ. And that Christ needed to come to die to be able to purchase his bride, to be able to come and release people who were captive. And the strong man had to, take, to, to, to basically assault the power of hell itself to release the grip. Not that, not that hell had some sort of, that he had to pay them off, but that God in his wrath had basically put a curse on all mankind in the fall. And Christ is breaking the power of condemnation for all mankind so that you are no longer guilty because he has taken on that wrath. And you are no longer enslaved to sin because he has now united, him to, united you to himself so that you are no longer slaves to sin. And so he's, he's, led cap, he's broken captivity for you. And this is a powerful thing that he goes and he says, I'm going to do that because I love my people that much. I'm going to go rescue them. And if you see the, the Christianity primarily as, as, as Christ saying, I really, really, really want you to like me. 
Will you please, please, please like me? And we're all going, oh, hey, will you like Jesus a lot? Will you establish a personal relationship with him and say, you really, really like Jesus? That, I'm, not say, I'm not trying to get you to not like Jesus. Okay? I don't want to say that that's not important. You really do need to love Jesus. But we're not out there saying, will you please, because Christ really wants you. No, he's out there like, because you're dead. And the gospel goes out and makes people alive so that they'll love. And if Christ was waiting around saying, hey, I'm, I'm here, will people like me? And if he hadn't done anything more than to, to make himself attractive to people, he had to go out and rescue. Do you understand that the gospel is a rescue mission? It's not an attractional. It's not like a, hey, Jesus is really cool and good looking kind of mission. And, and you should really like him kind of mission. It's a Jesus is the only hope you have kind of mission. And by the power power of what he has accomplished, the power that he has as this king to bring us out of captivity kind of mission. That's the gospel. That's why it's called a kingdom. It's not called an, a, a, a kind of like a social media influencing kind of thingy. That's not what we are. We're not the Christian church of the social media, media influencing thingy. I, that doesn't even roll off the tongue. I can't even think of a word. We're part of the kingdom of God, and Christ is the king. And the means of his warfare are to go and break strongholds and to shatter the, the forces that hold people in chains of their sin and in, in, of darkness and that sort of thing. And that requires that the power of the gospel go out to, 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 um, to break the chains that hold us. And so that's what Christ came to do, to be able to rescue his bride. And so it says... It concludes in verses 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, it's important to recognize that we are kind of in a period where things are not all fulfilled. Remember, we are now, we, that Christ has definitively um, set his people free in the cross. And we're still gathering, he's still gathering all of those whom he will call into his kingdom. But we do not yet see the kingdom consummated. We don't see everything done. We're kind of in that in-between period. And a lot of what we've been reading here is what's kind of pictured in the book of Revelation. If I'm breaking your heart about the idea that Revelation isn't about Comanches and all sorts of like Apache helicopters and, and um, all the stuff from the Left Behind series, then I, I, we can talk. But that's not really, that's not really what Revelation is about. It's, in, in, it's intended to be able to be a a comfort to believers. And in part, it's kind of like a way of Psalm 2 unfolding because what you see is you see these episodes of things on the earth where rulers and the culture all seem to be getting the upper hand and the, the church just seems to be assailed and like weak and pitif pitiful. And then you go, let's look on the earth for a second. It's like, oh man, Christians, they don't seem like they're doing really well. Everything's really bad. There's this law here that says you, that this is a hate crime if you, if you preach the word of God and you can get arrested for doing that. Or, or you know, you can be, you're, these Christians here are being put to death by ISIS and, and, and they're still believing and they're being beheaded. And we're thinking, no, Christians are losing. And then, and then it zooms out 
And in the king, and kingdom, you see Christ on his throne and everything's, everything, like he's in charge of everything. And the saints are saying, how long? How long before you mete out your wrath on what's going on? And then finally it comes, right? And there's going to be a come a time when it's not going to always be like we sometimes think, well, God is never going to be mean to people, is he? It's like, well, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but you're going to have to be cutting out an entire uh, portion of scripture to come to the conclusion that Christ is not coming in judgment against the nations because he is, he is, he has taken sides. It's like a man takes the side of his wife and the church is his bride. And you're either his bride or you're an enemy of the bride in this world. And Christ is taking sides. And so the nations are warned. They've, they're, they're given two aspects. They're given like the carrot and the stick. They're given the, steric, the, the stick and said, hey, the steric, hey, you better, God's coming back. Be warned. And he's coming in judgment. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And some of those knees are going to be bowing and tongues confessing not willingly. And what we, and, 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 and I'm not saying this going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to see those people groveling. That's not why I'm saying that. I'm saying it because it's true. It's frightening. It's terrifying. And this should animate us to think because one way or the other, you are, your sins are going to be judged. Now the question is, will your sons be judged in the sun? Or will you be judged for your own sins? Because Christ takes on the judgment of everybody who comes and it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. So the, the solution to that is for the nations and the people to come kiss the son. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean, oh, I just fell in love with Jesus kind of thing. No, it means kiss the son in this context means you need to kind of bow down to him. You need to worship him. This is the, t- the term in the ancient Near East that, you would, that a sign of kiss would be that the, the ruler would come and say, I, I, I have my entire allegiance to you. I'm no longer going to be fighting against you. You are my king. You are my sovereign. There's a story in, um, not a story, it's a, it's a true a- account of this min- uh, missionary from Australia to Ethiopia many years ago where um, they were preaching in, this, in, in Ethiopia and this uh, uh, medicine man and uh, his slave got word that this, this person named Jesus was talking about changing hearts and changing lives. And so they traveled over a few days and, and uh, came to this village where the missionary was, along with the other um, uh, pastor who was from the region. And I guess the guy, like it was common for, you know, the, you know, the medicine man to have, or the witch doctor to have like rancid butter and ashes on him and I don't know I mean it was just like he was he was a very important person in their religion and he came and said hey I heard you're Jesus and they said no you got it wrong and they spent three days with him and his slave explaining what the gospel was to this to this witch doctor and at the at the end of it 
he, this um, witch doctor came and said, I give, I hold up my two hands and I give them to Jesus. I surrender. It's, a, it's a, in his culture a way saying, I surrender. Everything he has is mine. He is my Lord. This is what the, this is what the, the scriptures are calling us to. Because during this time, you may have been thinking, well, we're talking about those people out there. But what if you're in here and you're the one who has not yet surrendered to the Son? You're the one that still is raging against the Lord and his anointed. It can happen from within the church. We heard about it in, in, in Acts chapter 4 that the very people that should be serving the king are the ones that are actually plotting against him. You know, I, it's, it's one of those things that's the hardest job is when, when you're preaching or teaching is that you want to think that the things you're going to do are going to change people's hearts, that somehow you're going to tell the right kind of story that's going to kind of have the light go on. But the reality is the only way that that light happens is the light of the gospel is the word of God itself to transform a person's heart so that they recognize and they can see God for who he really is in the Son, that Christ is held out so they can understand the depth and the consequences of their sin not just as something in which, oh yeah, everybody's broken, everybody's got problems, to err is human, all that other stuff, but to recognize that we're in fundamental, fundamentally in rebellion against a holy God and that God's playing for keeps. And it's really easy to lose perspective and to, lo- and to, and to think in this world that we're, what the Christian church is about is just trying to, trying to kind of keep the temperature down and trying not to ruffle too many feathers and, and to say, you know what, we're just nice people here trying to live good lives and we don't really want to say anything that's going to upset you and that sort of thing. The gospel upsets people. Not because we're, we don't need to be jerks. I'm not trying to say that, that we need to be going out there and like being obnoxious people. But one of the things, if you've ever spent any time listening to debates sometimes between Christians or even if you've been in conversations, is that the people that, who, that supposedly don't at, believe in God whatsoever, you'll see Christians very calmly trying to explain things to them, and they're getting really upset about something that they don't even believe exists. Because the reality is that there is anger and wrath against a holy God. And the, the goal of our lives should be to be pointing people to Christ, to be pointing people to the hope that is within us, not some experience that we had that's deep within our heart that only we can understand, but the person and work of Christ is what the hope in our hearts is, that we understand what Christ has done so that when we think, see things that are happening, we're not looking to the future on the basis of something that we know that like, well, I had this experience. It's like, no, I know that Christ is on the throne. That's more more of an experience than an experience. It's a historical fact. It's a re- present reality that Christ is now reigning and ruling and causing everything to happen 
for us and for our salvation, that he's not doing anything, leaving no stone uncovered, doing everything that he can to make sure that we're, we are going to be saved to the uttermost. And what we need to do often is we need to look down to Psalm 2 and go, oh yeah, that's right. Jesus is going to have the victory. Amen. I need to go tell people about this because this is important. I need to stop just whining about how bad things are in the world. Oh, did you see this on Fox News? Oh my goodness, this is crazy. And then all day long, Fox News. I don't have a problem with Fox News. Just, but you can, if you, all you're doing all the time is just looking at how bad things are in the world, you can get really depressed and your, your, your vision goes, like this. And all you're thinking about is like, oh, things are going to be bad. My kids are going to be grow, grow up in a world where there's going to be like mayhem and everything. And they're not going to have any of the freedoms. They can't even go out and play the way I did as a kid and all this other stuff. How bad are things? And then you say, okay, stop for a second. And then you look and you say, you know what? Everything is okay. I'm not saying everything down here is okay but everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be good because Christ is on his throne. And what we need to be doing is we need to be laying hold of and trusting in and kissing the Son. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for the confidence that we have that Christ is going to work all things out for our good and for our salvation. Please forgive us for the times that we have forgotten that, and we often forget it in our lives, and we turn our our eyes and attentions, we look inward, we look around us, and we forget what the scriptures say about us. We forget that we are dearly beloved in Christ. So, Father, I ask that you would cause all, all of us who know that reality to cling a cling freshly to him today in confidence. And for those who are hearing about this for the first time or it's broken through, we ask that you would convert their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.